Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. I did not want to be a nonprofit, although I have started several nonprofits, because I believe that as a business, the notion that the business should generate enough revenue to sustain itself rather than to perpetually be looking for donations and contributions was more appealing to me. Even if you're not formally out raising money, you should always be out building a network of potential people. So you've got to go to a lot of parties. You've got to be aggressive in networking and meeting people because you need to build up a database of potential people that you can talk to. I'm very pleased today to introduce Jeffrey Hollander. Jeffrey is an American social entrepreneur, author and activist. After a wide-ranging business and entrepreneurial career, Jeffrey co-founded Seventh Generation and built it over 25 years into a leading natural product brand with sales of over $150 million. Recognized for its authenticity, transparency, and progressive business practices. Jeffrey recently co-founded Hollander Sustainable Brands, which sells sustained, natural, sexual wellness products. He is CEO and Chief Inspired Protagonist. Well, thank you very much, Jeffrey, for taking the time today to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs. I'm very much looking forward to talking to you and hearing your story, building Seventh Generation and all the other work that you do and the books that you've written. Terrific. I'm happy to be here. Excellent. Well, uh, Seventh Generation, it's a, it's a great name. Where does that name come from, Jeffrey? And can you tell me a little bit about the inspiration for building the business? Sure. Uh, let's start with the name. The name Seventh Generation came from one of our early employees. We had a contest to come up with the best name for the company. And we had a young woman who was half Mohawk. And she, uh, in the Iroquois tradition, suggested the name Seventh Generation because of its meaning. And it comes from a saying that is translated into, in our every deliberation, we should consider the impact of our decisions on the next seven generations. So that is a name that was not only inspiring, but a name that we thought we could spend our entire lives trying to live up to. Great, the, great, the, a great, a great idea and, and a, a really important one, I guess, in, in so many uh, related to the ideas of sustainability, which is very important at the moment and, and longer term thinking. Um, what was your vision for the company at the beginning? So back in 1985, I wrote my first book, which was called How to Make the World a Better Place, A Beginner's Guide. And it was really my exploration into all of the opportunities that were available to us to make a positive contribution, either socially or environmentally, to the world. And in writing the book, I discovered a mail-order catalog that was started by Renew America that was a nonprofit organization in Washington, D.C., and they had created a catalog of energy-efficient and water-conserving products. And I thought, you know, what a great idea. And you have to remember, this is 1985, so this is a long time ago. Um, 
And I thought, what a wonderful thing to sell products uh, because as the business grew and we sold more products, we would continually have a more and more significant positive contribution to the environment. And unfortunately, that catalog went out of business before the book got published. But I got into con connection with the people who started it, and they basically let us take it over from them. And so that was the foundation of seventh generation uh, energy and water conservation. And then we grew over time to add the seventh generation brand products, which are laundry products, dish products, paper products, and all types of personal care products. And we were until 1993 uh, just a mail order catalog. And in 93, we started selling our products in retail stores, primarily natural product stores. Right, right. That was uh, very early. And now there's Whole Foods and there are many other uh, uh, outlets catering to this growing demand for these kinds of products and so forth. But I guess back in uh, the late 80s, this was, uh, still is uh, to some degree, but it was very pioneering. Um, you, you mentioned that the, uh, the mail order catalog or New America was um, a non-profit. Did you think about that at the beginning? Because I think it's an interesting question in the whole, uh, presumably social entrepreneurship as a kind of c category didn't exist in that way. But did you think about that at the beginning? And uh, have you got some thoughts generally on that, on, on that, on the idea of being a profit-making and social-oriented business? Yes. Well, I think that, that profit-making businesses uh, certainly have a mixed reputation at best, but it is not necessarily so that you have to have a profit-making business that doesn't have a terrific mission, vi mission and vision and aspires to make a positive contribution to society. I did not want to be a nonprofit, although I have started several nonprofits, because I believe that as a business, the notion that the business should generate enough revenue to sustain itself rather than to perpetually be looking for donations and contributions was more appealing to me. Uh, I, I, appreciate that when the business reaches some state of maturity, it is financially sustainable, where most nonprofits, uh, in some respects, you could argue are not, because they're endlessly dependent upon their donors to continue to finance their work. Yes, yeah, that, that, that's common. Uh, many social entrepreneurs I've spoken to are highly motivated by that sustainability aspect. How hard was it to, to actually make a profit? It's a nice idea, um, and clearly there are a range of domains where it, it is not possible to make a profit. There are all kinds of social initiatives that, you know, it's, it, there, are, there aren't even revenues available. What was your experience? We had a miserably difficult and painful time getting to profitability. Uh, believe it or not, it took 13 years until the company became consistently profitable. And while I thought uh, the idea of sustainability financially was attractive, it eluded us for a long time. And I think that's largely because we were way too early into the market. When we started back in 1988, the, the word green products or socially responsible business that language didn't even exist. 
And so our biggest challenge was that we were early and that there was a very, very small base of consumers who had any idea or any interest in what we were selling. Now that began to change dramatically around 2000. Uh, and it was largely connected to the success of retailers like Whole Foods that started to expand nationally. Uh, and that growth of the natural product industry really propelled us forward and helped us to become consistently profitable. We also took, you know, from 1988 to 2000, over those 12, 13 years, we grew to about 10 million in sales. Uh, in the next decade, from 2000 to 2010, we grew from 10 million to 175 million. And that is very much a reflection of the changing retail landscape and the changing interest that consumers had in natural, organic, and sustainable products. Right, right. That's interesting. There just wasn't the demand there at the time, as you say. And and you know, if no, nobody wants to buy the products, um, it's it's difficult. Um, how did you finance this, uh, Jeffrey? And how did you you know manage your relationship with sources of finance funders? And can you talk a little bit about you know your experience generally with with respect to uh, raising money and and dealing with in investors or different kinds of uh, you know people who provide different kinds of financial support? Sure. Well, before I started Seventh Generation, uh, going back even earlier to 1979, I started another company which was a publishing company. And I sold that publishing company to Warner Communications, and it was a very successful investment. Um, everyone who made an investment in 1979 made about 10 times their money when we sold the company to Warner Communications in 1985. So I already had what's called a track record. I, I had demonstrated that I was able to grow and build the business, and thus it was much easier for me to attract investors. Now, to keep attracting investors for 13 years while I was losing money <laughs> was not easy. Uh, I did a lot of begging, uh, and uh, I uh, eventually, uh, during the process, ran out of individuals that I knew that I could even ask for. And in 1993, uh, even though we were losing money and we were tiny, we went public in the United States to tap into a wider pool of investors. We did everything but take any venture capital money. Uh, all the money that financed the company uh, until 2000 was all from individuals. Starting in 2000, we started to take private equity and venture capital. And I would say that that's a much trickier and at times treacherous path because those investors have uh, not only much more experience but they have very very specific expectations of you and things are not always so nice when you don't meet those expectations. Right, right. Maybe we can talk about that in a moment. Just talking about the the uh, business, I guess what you call business angels. Presumably, they were they were investing in the business. I suppose maybe some provided loans and so forth. What uh, advice would you give other uh, social entrepreneurs about uh, uh, raising this money and 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 managing, uh, I guess, expectations and and relationships with these kinds of investors? 
Sure. You know, first of all, I think you want to, uh, to frame the process of raising money as something that you are always doing. Even if you're not formally out raising money, you should always be out building a network of potential people. So you've got to go to a lot of parties. You've got to be aggressive in networking and meeting people because you need to build up a database of potential people that you can talk to. I have a database today of about 500 potential investors that I stay in touch with on a regular basis, uh, even though uh, only 50 of them are currently invested in my company. So it's very important to build that network. And that network should include literally everybody and anyone. It should include your dentist, your doctor. Uh, it should include friends and family. Um, and you have to be comfortable asking people for money. I would say most people fail to successfully raise money because they're uncomfortable asking and they don't invest enough time. When I'm raising money, it takes 25 to 50 percent of my time focused on doing that. Most people underestimate how much time it takes and simply don't put the time in to generate the funds that they're hoping to raise. Right, that's interesting. Uh, what does it mean? Uh, you say they're uncomfortable asking. How do you ask? And particularly in a situation, I guess, where, you know, uh, well, probably the case for the majority of social businesses, um, they're not going to go public. Uh, they're unlikely to go public, shall we say. The whole question of how people get their money back is can be a slightly vexed one, I guess, um, because there is probably some trade-off between you know maximizing profits and you know delivering social impact. It, it's a real challenge because most investors don't want to give you money for their entire lives, and so most people who make an investment want you to be thinking about how you're going to repay them over a five to ten year period of time. And there's a variety of ways in which you can repay them. You can bring in new investors to buy out the old investors. You can sell the company. Uh, you can buy the investors out yourself if you have the financial resources. But the investors want to know that you're thinking about how to give them an exit. If you haven't thought about that, you'll make them nervous because they'll think that you don't see that as a priority. So it's always important to be able to be talking about the ways in which you might be able to return their investment, even if you don't know exactly what that strategy will be. Right, right. That's interesting. Well, I guess concretely, right at the beginning, you probably didn't have a sense whether it was going to be viable to go public. What did you say to people? What we did is we had a page in our presentation that simply listed the four or five ways that they might be able to get an exit from the business. We said we have no idea what that exit will be or exactly when it will happen. But we've thought about the different options that may be available to you, and here's what they are.
Right. And and what about returns then? Because presumably there's an, well, implicit or explicit. You're saying to somebody, you know, we're talking about five to seven years if things go according to plan. And, you know, uh, what how, how do you frame the question of returns? It's a tough, tough subject because investors have often very unreasonable expectations of what it is you'll be able to achieve. Typically today, people are looking for a 30% compounded return on their investment per year. That means that every year the value of their investment goes up by 30%. Now, we know uh, that very, very, very few investments will perform that well. And the reality is in this environment, if you're generating a 10% return or a 15% return on an annual basis, you're doing very, very well. But because so many investments go down the drain and return nothing, investors often want to be promised a much more successful return to make up for all the bad investments that don't perform. This is a, a challenge because it also encourages in entrepreneurs to make unreasonable uh, projections in terms of what they can accomplish. The biggest thing I see when I critique business plans are people that are showing growth that is just highly unlikely for them to be able to achieve. And this is a unpleasant dance that the social entrepreneur gets into with the investor where to attract the investor you have to make promises that you're unlikely to be able to meet. But if you don't make those promises, then people are unlikely to invest. And I am uh, unusual because I will not make those very aggressive projections. I'll make very conservative projections. And I'll say, you know, uh, if you want someone who's going to promise you the moon but has very little chance of ever getting there, don't invest with me. Yes. I'm going to make conservative projections, projections that I hope I can meet because there's nothing worse than making projections that you miss quarter after quarter, year after year. That's an unpleasant and painful process. My advice is to under-promise and over-deliver. Yes, yes. Good, very good advice. Now, how many of your investors were interested in the impact side of things and how many of them were just, you might as well have been selling, you know, uh, anything really, I mean, not something negative, but, you know, any other product, they, they liked you, they liked the fact that you were, you know, you, you were enthusiastic about your business and you, you know, you, you seemed to know what you were talking about because there has been a growth in uh, impact investment. Um, and I'm not sure how familiar you are with the, the current kind of market conditions in America, whether that has you know, uh, opened up in, in a meaningful way uh, sources of finance for um, you know, more innovative social uh, innovation? You know, there's more money looking to invest in social businesses than ever before, but there's also more social businesses looking for money than ever before. So in terms of supply and demand, I would say access to capital is still a huge challenge and hasn't gotten much better. Um, I would say about half of my investors invest primarily for social reasons, environmental reasons, and half invest primarily for financial reasons. 
Uh, it turns out that my female investors tend to be much more socially and environmentally focused than my male investors tend to be. Um, but it is preferable, you know, if I could raise all my money with people who invest with me because of my mission, that would absolutely be my preference. I try not to get investment from people who are only concerned about their financial returns. Uh, I, I find that they are less patient, less understanding, and not as good a citizen in my investor community uh, as my mission-first investors. But those mission-first investors are hard to find. And uh, as I said, you have to be building this network. You have to be going to conferences. You have to be going to parties. You have to be networking. And you have to have, uh, I would say, a network of entrepreneurs around you. I mean, I have a whole group of fellow entrepreneurs who are raising money. And I just had a good friend uh, who, who wrote me and said, look, uh, can, you, can you share five or ten names with me? Uh, and I was happy to do so. Uh, and sharing those names amongst the entrepreneurial community really helps strengthen everyone's chances for success. Great, great. That sounds like very good advice. Uh, is there anything else you'd add to this uh, question of, uh, we're not business angels, but business devils, or, or the wrong kind of partner? What's the sign that actually, because these are quite important relationships really, aren't they? And you know, if you get it wrong, I guess that can be a problem. I would say for your major investors, I mean, you know, if you have some people who are investing 5000 and some people who are investing 100000 for your large investors, you want to do some due diligence on them. You want to talk to CEOs of companies they've invested in and say, what's it like having this person as an investor? What happens when you had a bad quarter? What happens when things didn't turn out quite the way you expected? How did they behave? Were they supportive? Uh, did they put pressure on you to pull back on your social and environmental commitments because you weren't hitting your numbers? So doing some due diligence on your larger investors is very, very important. And the best place to do that is with the CEOs that they've invested in. Excellent. That's really good advice. Um, can I just hold for one second? If somebody arrived, <laughs> this is rather sure. embarrassing. Um, one, one no, second. no, no, no problem. Um, sorry, it's, I've got to. Hello, are you outside number one A?
Murphy's Law. Hello? No. Yeah, no. very good. Brilliant. Um, so um, that's, that's really, really useful advice. Tell me a little bit about uh, private equity or venture capital. Um, you know, at what stage is it, you know, would you say a, an important or necessary source of finance? And then maybe you can talk a little bit about um, some, some uh, advice in how to, to, yeah. to deal with that. So there are some uh, social entrepreneurs that start out with private equity or venture capital or hedge fund money. Uh, there's no rule that says they only come in at a later stage. There's some seed uh, funding that's available from that community. Uh, but there's some challenges that you want to be aware of. If we talk about venture capital specifically, Typically, a venture fund will have a lifespan of six or seven, maybe eight years, and they effectively promise to return their investors' money at the end of that time, so they want to find a way to exit their investment. So one of the things you want to know is where is that fund in its life cycle, because if you take money from a fund that only has three or four years left, they're going to want to know after a year or two how you're going to get them out of their investment and pay them back. So one thing that you want to do is you want to try to get involved in the early stage just after the fund has been raised rather than a later stage. As we talked about before, we also want to make sure that we're doing our due diligence with other companies that they've invested in. I think you want to also try to evaluate how valuable they'll be as an investor. If you're in the e-commerce business, do they have other e-commerce companies in their portfolio that will make them particularly knowledgeable about e-commerce and allow you to network with the other companies they've made an investment in so that you can learn from those other companies. If you're in the consumer products business, is that an area that they've specialized in? I don't like uh, taking money from people who don't really understand my business. Uh, it, it doesn't tend to make them good investors. So you want to make sure that they understand your business, they understand the risks uh, that face your business and that they can be helpful in navigating through those challenges. Right. That's very interesting. And what, um, uh, when it comes to this question of expectations, you mentioned um, uh, when it comes to individuals, uh, it's, it's somewhat different. Uh, when, when it comes to, you know, professional investors, I guess, they're also, you know, they've got investors that they need to, uh, you know, satisfy and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about managing that? Because clearly, you know, in any growing company situation, uh, you don't know what the future holds. Things can, the market can go against you. You can have unexpected events and so forth. Yeah. The most important thing you can do with any investor is to communicate. I am very, very strict about sending out a detailed quarterly letter giving good news and bad news. Uh, the worst thing you can do is be silent. Uh, the only thing worse than being silent is to be silent and then surprise your investors with bad news. If things are not going well, communicate quickly. Don't wait. Uh, 
but communication is important. I send out a four to five page letter, as I said, four times a year. And I really try to give people an honest and detailed perspective on how the business is doing, what's working, what's not working. I always compare my performance to the forecast that I made when they invested. So I'm being accountable to that forecast that they used when they decided to invest with me. So those are some of the best practices I find in building positive long-term relationships with your investors. Great, that's great. And when you had professional investors, how aware were you of, of some of these considerations and you know, how did that work out for you? Well, I, I've been doing this for a long time. I have started five businesses over uh, 40 years. Uh, so I've been through a lot, hundreds of different investors at, at five different companies. Uh, and I've learned along the way, uh, it is really helpful to have some more experienced uh, people that you can turn to. It's also great to have those experienced people on your board so that they can provide you with good advice. I often will send my shareholder letter out to my board first to have them review and critique it uh, before I send it out to my shareholders. Uh, you do want to be very careful uh, to try to maintain control over your board. Uh, don't fill your board up with a lot of people that you don't know well. Uh, I would say be more careful of your board than any other group of people that you choose. And that includes your employees because it is often harder to get rid of an investor and board member than it is an employee. That's very interesting. What does that mean, though, um, I, I, you know, uh, in practical terms when it comes to, to finding a board member? I, you know, on the one hand, I guess, you know, uh, experienced uh, business people bring uh, connections, networks, uh, uh, very uh, relevant experience sometimes. I guess there can be a temptation to, to build a big board to, you know, what, what's your advice on, 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 on that? Yeah, I would say five to seven people is an ideal size. Uh, three is a little bit small from my experience. Um, at Sustain Natural, which is the company that I started uh, a couple of years ago, uh, we have a seven-person board, but we control that board. So four of those board members are elected by my family, uh, and I have control of the board uh, pretty much in perpetuity. Uh, that is important to me. Uh, the investors elect two board members, and my staff elects the uh, seventh board member. Uh, but there's no one formula to do this. There's a lot of different ways uh, to build a board. Uh, and you want to build a board of people that are really going to take this seriously. There's nothing worse than having board members who aren't available, who aren't focused, and who aren't really committed to, uh, to helping you. And of course, uh, generally speaking, uh, it helps if they're investors and they're willing to uh, make introductions to you to other investors. Um, but the art of, of managing a board is, is uh, is something that, that you learn over time. Uh, 
I find it, it helps to sit on other boards. I sit on several other boards. It, it's interesting to see how other people manage and run their board meetings and what I can learn from that about how I want to run my own. Right, that's very interesting. Now, are, in retrospect or looking back, were there alternatives to getting the professional investors in? What kind of growth were you looking for at that stage? What alternatives would you have had? Well, um, you know, there's always alternatives. I mean, I, again, I don't know what the laws are in the UK, but we have uh, this new legislation that allows for what we call crowdfunding yeah, so sure. that you can actually uh, tap into a much wider network than you know personally. Uh, I have done that with Sustain. Uh, we've used a company in the United States called Circle Up uh, to help us raise money uh, in all of the offerings that we've done. So the good news is that there's more options like that today than there ever were in the past um, and you really want to stay on top of those options you want to have a good uh, you want to have good legal counsel that's familiar with those options and can help guide you to the ones that are best and most appropriate for your needs right right very interesting now what about in terms of just growing the business um, you talked about the fact the market was slow to to grow uh, what was one or two of the biggest challenges you had building the business? Oh, well, we had hundreds of challenges, <laughs> far more than one or two. Um, you know, I think the most fundamental challenge, which you just alluded to, is it's very hard to sell something to people who aren't already looking to buy it. So if you're trying to sell a product that people don't already think they need, uh, that's really, really difficult. And one of the interesting tools that I use is Google Analytics. One of the things that I'm always evaluating is how many people are searching for what it is that I want to sell. And if there's very, very few Google searches for what you want to sell, uh, you better take a pause and think about starting the business because that means that people aren't looking for it. Um, if you find you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people looking for what it is that you want to offer, that's a good sign. That tells you that the market is, is probably much more ready for you to enter it than, uh, than if you find very few searches for the product or service you're trying to sell. Yes, there's a, uh, I don't know whether it's a true story or not, but a group of experts, all business experts, all being asked what they what they is the one thing that they think is the most important uh, to you know to build a successful business, and the, they they proffer you know uh, once as a really good source of funding, and somebody else says you know uh, somebody's really good at managing a team, and somebody else says just a brilliant product, and uh, then this uh, 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 chap says well actually uh, a starving crowd. <laughs> yes, a starving crowd is ideal. Uh... And if the crowd is not hungry for what it is you have to offer, uh, I would say hit the pause button. Right, right. I guess um, another question, I suppose, is, is for um, uh, some social entrepreneurs is this question of sales and marketing and making profits. 
um, and you know pricing things in such a way um, in order to to make profits and be sustainable because there's in 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 many cases an inherent uh, tension between <clears throat> higher prices which uh, you know many social entrepreneurs are unwilling or unhappy about um, to uh, you know but the necessity to 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 generate uh, some money to support the growth of the business. Yes, that's always a point of tension and uh you know my advice is uh focus on products or services that have big gross margins uh so when we were in the business of selling bathroom tissue we had let's say a 30 percent gross margin now today in the condom business we have 80 to 90 percent gross margins the bigger the gross margin is the easier it is for you to sell your product at a competitive price and pay the additional costs that go into making that product. We sell fair trade certified condoms, condoms that have been certified by the Forest Stewardship Council, um, just as two examples. That costs additional money. We pay more money to meet those standards. If we didn't have good gross margins, and we tried to pass those higher costs on to the consumers, we would potentially be selling our product at a price that was too high and people wouldn't be willing to pay. Yes, yes. So can you tell me about your, your latest uh, initiative and, and you know, uh, where, where you got the, the uh, I guess, the idea to, to, you know, to, to set this business up and, and where are you on your journey? Yeah. So we started Sustain Natural. Uh, uh, in 2013, we entered the market in 2014. Uh, we are a sustainable, natural, sexual wellness company that sells products primarily to young women. Um, the idea uh, came about uh, almost 20 years ago, uh, and uh, I was influenced by the destruction of the rainforest and the AIDS crisis and wanted to see if I could develop a product that would address both of those challenges at the same time and thus got attracted to the idea of harvesting uh, latex uh, from uh, the rainforest and selling condoms that would help slow the growth of AIDS. Never got around to doing that until I left seventh generation. Uh, after I left seventh generation, uh, I came to the conclusion that that was the best idea that I that I had, uh, and what was compelling uh, to me uh, was that we could sell a natural product that was sustainably harvested because condoms are made from uh, the sap of the rubber tree, so it's an agricultural product. Uh, those trees are taking CO2 out of the environment and helping to mitigate climate change. Uh, by providing a product to young women to help them more effectively plan the size of their family, uh, those smaller families are less likely to have uh, problems with hunger. They have better socioeconomic outcomes. Uh, we were able to redesign the manufacturing process to make the condoms uh, vegan. Uh, so we were able to build a product uh, that had all kinds of very, very positive benefits. We are certified non-GMO. 
We are a certified B Corporation, which is something that's just now uh, crossing the ocean and, and making its way into, uh, into the UK. Um, so what was exciting to us was having a product that had so many positive attributes and in many senses had positive attributes that outweighed its negative attributes. As wonderful as seventh generation paper towels are because they're not bleached with chlorine and they're made from 100% recycled fiber, they still create waste and garbage. They still uh, consume a significant amount of energy and water in their manufacturing process. And I consider those products to be less bad. We wanted to create a product that we really considered to be good. Right. Is that important? I mean, how do you uh, assess? I mean, there's, there's, there's um, again, I, you would have seen this uh, close, uh, close up over the, the, the horizon uh, of your, your uh, time you've been involved in, I guess, responsible business, the commitment of uh, large scale businesses to various forms of sustainability, uh, uh, certainly a, a, a lot of awareness, and a lot of talk, and I guess varying degrees of real action and commitment to, to sustainability. What's your sense of how how well companies are doing on this uh, front, particularly given the dramatic need for the need for dramatic change in very shortened time horizons to meet uh, various you know COP twenty one and SDG goals. Yeah, so certainly there's a lot more attention and focus on sustainability at large companies. Uh, I think probably virtually all large companies are aware of the issue and are doing something to address it. The problem is uh, the vast majority of companies, 99% out of 100, are not doing enough. They're making small incremental changes when much more radical and revolutionary changes are needed. So I would say that we're buying ourselves a little bit more time. Uh, we're, we're slowing the rate at which uh, things are getting bad, but that's not what we need to be doing. We need to stop the negative effects we're having. We need to stop contributing to climate change. We need to stop polluting water. And large companies are just not there. Large companies are doing less bad rather than good. There's, there's some terrific large companies who, who are, are making aggressive commitments that they're not even sure they know how to fulfill. Uh, and, you know, those companies uh, include businesses like Unilever, uh, that to my mind uh, is one of the best 10 companies globally from a sustainability perspective. Uh, Marks and Spencer does some very good work. Uh, Ikea uh, does some very good work. So they're definitely leaders amongst large companies from a sustainability perspective, but none of them have figured out how to have a positive effect on the environment. They're all focused at the moment on having less of a negative effect. Right, right. That's interesting. It's, um, as you say, um, it's a, a, big, a big job, a, a very big job. Finally, I guess, Jeffrey, what is your vision for the future of Sustain over the next three to five years? Where, where, where do you want to be? What, what are your goals? What, what do you want to achieve? Well, we want to increase our distribution. 
We're in about 3,500 retail stores. Uh, we want to grow that exponentially. Today, about 25% of our business is done through e-commerce. We want to grow that to 50%. We would like half of our business to come through e-commerce. Um, we're dramatically expanding our product portfolio. So today, we uh, sell condoms and lubricants and what we call post-play wipes. Uh, in January, we're adding about six additional personal care products. So we want to continue to uh, build that product portfolio. But most importantly, more than anything else, we want to build a positive conversation around sex and responsible sex. We want to encourage women to feel less awkward about buying products to protect themselves, more comfortable in being assertive to ensure that condoms are used. And those cultural behavioral changes uh, where we can have a positive effect on the lives of young women are absolutely the most important goals that we have for our company. Excellent, excellent. Uh, I have just thought of one other question I would like to ask, and I'll cut that in later to the other part of it, which is about the skills and uh, um, for, to be a social entrepreneur. So I just ask that now. Um, so um, you've you've written several books, and and you've looked closely uh, at, at uh, the kind of people who who uh, are social innovators and, and and what they need to do and so forth. What kind of skills do you think are required to to to, to be a uh, social entrepreneur, to be a successful social entrepreneur. Yeah. So I can think of a few things that are pretty critical. Um, the first is a discipline called systems thinking. Uh, that is the single most important discipline I think social entrepreneurs need to study. And I am an adjunct professor uh, of business at New York University, and systems thinking is a part of all the classes that I teach. Secondly, uh, you need to be humble. You need to recognize what it is you don't know and still need to learn. And you need to be a good learner because as someone who dropped out of college after a year and a half, uh, when I started my first business, I didn't know much. But what saved me was that willingness to acknowledge how much I didn't know and being willing to seek out teachers and mentors and other people who could help teach me the skills that were required to be a good business person. Um, and amongst those skills, probably the single most important is being able to manage people, being able to inspire people, being able to help get people passionate about what they're doing and help them grow and cultivate their potential. Because most of what a business accomplishes isn't going to be accomplished by you. It's going to be accomplished by the people around you. And the smarter they are, I always say I like to hire people that are smarter and more capable than I am. Uh, I don't want to limit the business to my capabilities or my knowledge. So those are some of the things that are top of mind for me. That's very interesting. Just on systems thinking, any resources, any ways, this is not something I've heard people talk about, although I do realize that social entrepreneurs particularly, uh, they have talked about it in terms of, uh, trying to influence the greater system. After a certain point, they realize that you know, no matter how big they build their organization, it's still relatively a drop in the ocean. And then they are starting to think about how they influence the system within which they operate. You know, the single best resource to start with uh, is a lecture that Peter Senge gave 
and Peter Senge is spelled S-E-N-G-E. And the talk is called Systems Thinking for a Better World. And he gave that talk in 2014 at the ALTO, A-A-L-T-O, Systems Forum. It's about an hour long, and it's the best introduction to systems thinking that I have come across. Excellent. Thank you very much. And thank you, Jeffrey, for taking the time to speak today for Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs. That's been a very rich, uh, fascinating discussion, full of uh, hard-won uh, lessons and insights, and I wish you the very best of success in the future. Great. And if people are interested, uh, I post lots of articles on my website, jeffreyhollander.com, and that is a rich resource for social entrepreneurs in a whole variety of different areas. Excellent. Thank you for that, Jeffrey. My pleasure. Happy to speak with you. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.